Michelle, you said I'm one of the associate pastors here, and I'm really excited to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, we're looking at Ephesians, and we are um, we're in Ephesians chapter two, and this is a pretty pretty well known passage. Um, in fact, at one point in time while we were discussing it, I said if I'm going to preach this, I'll read the passage, I'll sit down, and we'll call the band back up, and we'll call it a day because it's 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 that good of a passage that we could just read it and just get that much out of it. Um, but as I was studying, I started to think about movie tropes. Do you guys know what tropes are? Tropes are like, you know, the bad guys always wear black hats and the good guys wear white hats, or the damsel in distress trope, um, or, um, you know, every time it rains, something bad happens. You know, these are things that happen in movies that we kind of, you know, all automatically assume we know what's going to happen. And I thought about the trope of the, the patient laying in the hospital bed unconscious. And as they wake up, and they don't know where they're at, they don't know how they got there, and they've got a family member who's sitting in the corner, or a friend that's sitting in the corner, and as soon as they open up their eyes, they run up and they say, oh my goodness, I'm so excited that you're alive, I'm so happy you're safe, I'm so happy you're well, and the person looks at them and says, or says what happened? How did I get here? And they said, oh my goodness, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you the situation of peril you were in, or let me tell you about the situation that, that, that befell you, the accident that happened, and let me tell you about who saved you. Let me tell you the story of how you were saved. And I think that's how Paul is in this message, in, in this part of, of Ephesians. He's that guy in the corner who as soon as we come to, he wants to tell us, this is how you got saved. This is how bad the situation was. This is the mess we were in. And this is why God saved us. This is how God saved us, and this is why he did it. And so if you guys join with me, um, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 10 verses. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to look at that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the coming age he might show us immeasurable grace, riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk, with, walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open up this passage to us. Lord, I ask that you would let us see uh, what you want us to see. May the words I speak be the words you want me to say. Ultimately, Lord, we want to be more like your son. So Lord, I ask that, that in hearing your word, that we would walk away changed, that we'd be more like you and less like us. In your name I pray. Amen. So here we've got Paul, and he wants to tell us the mess we're in. 
And he starts out and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. There aren't a whole lot of options from dead, are there? I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. And here Paul says that because of our sin, because of our, our separation from God, because of the missing the mark of what God wanted us to do, we're dead. We are separated from God. Spiritually, we've got nothing. We're utterly bankrupt. He wants us to know the importance of this. And God, being the God of life, this is the exact opposite of him. The God who created, and here we are dead. Stuck in a position solely because of our actions. And he wants us to know that without Jesus, we are so far away from God that we have no life. He wants to paint a picture of desperation for us. I do this thing in youth group. I work with, with the high school and, and the middle schoolers, and I ask them periodically, do you think people are generally good or generally evil? And sometimes you get people and they start to argue, and it's a really good question to ask as they start to, to wrestle with this concept of whether we are good people or bad people by nature. And after they've argued for a bit, and I like to kind of let them go at it because it's fun to watch, um, and uh, after they've gone at it for a bit, I'll ask a really simple question. I'll say, those of you who go to public school or go to private school, because the homeschoolers, this doesn't necessarily work. I said, as you walked through your junior high, middle school hallways, and you looked at the array of students there in between classes, are people generally evil or generally good? <laughs> and in unison, they almost all go, people are evil. I'm not saying that middle school is, is Lord of the Flies, but it's close. <laughs> um, when people are left to their own devices, we're broken. We're dead in our sins. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us here. And we're going to get in the mud here. We're going to show how dirty we were. He says, you were dead in your trans." Uh, trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, he's saying that before we knew Jesus, we were just like the rest of the world. He means that, you know that person that you periodically see on social media, that everything they post is against everything you believe and you think that they are the epitome of evil? You know that person? He's saying we're just as bad as them. He's saying that we are equally as bad as that person who you think is the most evil person ever. Without Jesus, we're that bad. He says that we followed the prince of the power of the air. He's saying we followed Satan. He's not painting a picture that makes us look good, does he? But this is what the scripture says, that without Jesus, we were dead in our sins and just like the rest of the world. And we followed Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We disobeyed God. We were dead. We were disobedient. As far away from God as we could possibly 
ever be. God is intolerant of sin. And yet he's saying that by nature, we were sinners. We're not even halfway through this chunk. And we don't look very good, do we? Among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The things that we wanted to do, we would just do. Now, I know some of you probably here are thinking, well, I became a Christian at four. I couldn't have been this bad. But no, he doesn't leave any wiggle room. He's saying we're selfish. He's saying that by birth, we were dead, disobedient, and depraved. We did what we wanted when we wanted, and not just an act, but he says here, the desires are our body and the mind. In other words, the things we thought were sin and continued to separate us from God even more and more and more. We were God's enemy. I don't think we want to think about this very often, do we? I was watching an interview with a famous actor that most of us would probably know. And he struggles with depression. And just so you're aware, I'm not going to put a Band-Aid over depression. I think mental health is a real serious issue. But when I saw this interview, I was st- looking at this passage, and they just, it just shone to me the brokenness of our world. And so he was being interviewed, and the guy who was interviewing him said, so you struggle with depression. How, how do you cope? What do you do to get through it? And he said, well, he goes, he goes, he's like, I have a really great support system. My family and my friends really support me, and they, they really love me. And he goes, and then I work a lot. I keep myself busy. That's why you see me in all sorts of commercials and TV shows and whatever. He's like, I'm always working. Because the problem is, is when I stop and I think about the world, when I think about myself, I get desperate. I get scared. I get worried. And I thought, that's us. When we think about how far we've fallen, we should have a sense of despair. It makes sense. Where we were before Jesus is a mess. And if you don't have Jesus and you stop and think for a moment, hopelessness makes sense, doesn't it? Because we live in this broken, broken world and we are broken, broken people. But you know, there is no gospel if people aren't desperately and hopelessly alienated from God because of their sin. John Piper once wrote that we weren't in God's doghouse. We were in the morgue. Because in the doghouse, you can have the hope of at least maybe going back in. You might have the chance to fix it. But when you're dead, you're dead. And in this passage, he says, we were dead to our sins, we were disobedient to God, and we had a depraved mind and actions. This is hopelessness. 
but God. Amen? But God. We get to verse 4, and after he paints this picture of our brokenness, if he paints this picture of how devastatingly horrible we are, he says these two words, but God. He says, all that stuff is true. It's true about every single one of them. Mark is dead. Mark was dead, disobedient, and depraved. But God. And he says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. That which hated God, that which opposed God, that which was the enemy of God, God said, I'm going to take that in its disgustingness, in its vileness, in its depravity, in its dead, and I'm going to save it. Because I love it. Because I love Mark. Because he loves you. And says that with, because of his great love, which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in what? In Christ. He tethered us to Christ. It isn't anything that you did. If you're dead, what do you do? You'd be dead. And he says, I'm going to take that which was dead, and I'm going to see it through the lens of Christ's death and resurrection. And because of my love and because of my mercy, I'm going to raise it up. And he gets so excited here, this next phrase, he actually interrupts his thought which I, I'm not a writer, but I can't imagine writing and being so worked up that I had to stop writing and add something parenthetically in the middle of my thing because I, just, because I could not say it any other way. But he, he, he's talking about being dead in our transgressions and being alive in Christ. And if you go right from that point to verse 6, it makes sense. And this middle part right here actually interrupts his thought. And he says, by grace you've been saved. He is so excited that, that, that we have been rescued, that he has been saved, that he says, it's, it's because of grace. Grace is the only reason we're saved. God had mercy on us. God loved us. It's by grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. He just took that which was dead and made it alive because of his grace. And now he's raised us up and seated us with him Jesus, in the heavenly places. You who were dead, you who were disobedient, you who were depraved, are now a son and a daughter of the king. You who avoided the king and fought him and hated him and did everything against him are now the chosen child of the king. You are a prince or a princess. Isn't that cool? But the question then becomes, why did we do this? Why would God do this? And there are lots of reasons. We, we, we talk about God you know, saving us for his glory. But here in this passage, he gives us a couple things which I think are really, really, really important. Verse 7, he says, so that, in other words, the reason why. 
so that in the coming age he might show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness, his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you guys remember a, a couple weeks ago uh, when we started Ephesians, uh, Todd stood in front of the podium and preached heresy? <laughs> and we called him out for it? Do you guys remember what that heresy was about? Is verse 7 and 8. He, uh, it says in, in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The God of the universe, the God who can look at the, star, the stars in the sky and knows each one of them by name just by looking at them, can tell you how many sands are on the beach, can tell you exactly what's going on in Ben's brain, this God of the universe, this God of the universe says he wants to lavish his love, his grace on you. I don't think we can even fathom how awesome that is. Why did God want to save us? Because he wanted to lavish his love on us. Wow. I can't fathom how awesome that is. Can you? And yet for some reason, he took that which was dead, that which was disobedient, that was depraved, and said, I want nothing more than to raise it up and lavish my loving kindness on it. That's the God who loves you. He goes on and he says, It's for by grace you have been saved through faith, that it is not your own doing, and it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God wanted to be the hero. God wants us to know that we had nothing to do with this salvation. If we look back on our victim in the bed, let's just say hypothetically that our victim was in a boat accident. They're in the middle of the ocean. Their boat sank. They're sitting there in the middle of the ocean. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, miles and miles and miles away, they see a boat. And so our victim swims, and they make it to the boat. And they've been rescued by this boat, and that's awesome. We're so thankful that the boat was there. But do you know who did all the work? Our victim. They know exactly what happened. They swam, and guess who's the hero of that story? They are. Well, well and that's, that's not what he's saying happened here. He's not even saying that we started swimming in the boat sauce and met us halfway. He's not even saying that they were floating in the ocean, half dead, and a helicopter flew up and dropped an, a ladder, and they held on and grabbed on and just held on as tight as they could. No. He's saying that he was dead in the water. There wasn't room on the door for him, and he dropped down, and, 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 sorry. <laughs> I didn't ever practice that. That just came out. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and they're dead in the water. And that means that whoever rescues you have to go and get you. 
It has to pick you up and somehow take you from death to life. We aren't saved because of anything we've done. And I want you to know something that most of us in this room hate that. I want to earn what I have. Don't you? Don't most of us want to earn what we have? Because if I earn it, you can't take it away, right? Most likely. If I earned it, then I'm better than those who didn't. If I earned it, it's mine. If I earn it, I can show it off. We so desperately want to earn what we have that this rubs in the face of everything that I think that we were raised to believe. But yet God says, you offered nothing. Do you know what part of salvation you do well? It's the sin part. That's the part I do well. And we do the sin part really, really well. And everything else is God. And so God wants to love on you, wants to take you from death to life, wants to lavish his love on you so that you know that he's the hero. Which means that the person sitting next to you who's saved, who for some reason rubs you the wrong way for whatever reason, God loves that person just as much as you. And the God of the universe wants to lavish his love on that person not because of anything they've done, but because he loves them. He saved us because he's the hero, not us. He saved us because he wanted us to know our position. And knowing our position should help us love each other because everybody else is just as broken as we were. Everybody deserved this as much as we did. There's a couple more things here in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared before that we should walk in them. This verse... I learned more studying this verse than I thought that I would. This word workmanship, I always thought of it as utilitarian. That we're God's workmanship. We're God's hammer. We're God's screwdriver. We're here to do work. But do you know what that word is? In the original Greek, that word is poeum. What does that word sound like? It sounds a little bit like poem. What he's talking about here is, is art. What he's talking about here is, is we are God's poetry. That we are something beautiful that God is making. That God wanted to make that which was dead, that which was just disobedient, that which was depraved into something beautiful. He wants to make you into something beautiful. And I'll tell you something. This artist has never picked up a piece of clay and started and didn't finish it. God wanted us to be an expression of his artistic heart. He wanted you to be something beautiful. And so here we have 
the dead, the disgusting, the disobedient, and the depraved. And God says, I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to love them and lavish my love on them, but I'm going to make them into something beautiful, something artistic, something to show my heart to the rest of the world. And then with that beauty, I'm going to give them a job to do that only they can do. Do you realize that? That if God has made you, if God has saved you, that he has a plan for you to do good works, that he has put you and only you on this planet to do. So when you do something good, you're doing that which God had already planned and prepared for you. You're doing what he had planned that only you could do. We have come so far from the dead. We've gone from disgusting the enemy, the rejected, to the raised, to the honored, to the child, to the co-laborer with the King of Kings. That's pretty cool. That's what our faith is. That's how our God loves us. So I could end here. And a lot of you would be happy because we'd be done early. But I'm not. <laughs> what does this mean for us? I mean, this is a lot of like, you know, warm fuzzies and it's great. But how do we apply this to our lives? First, I don't think we should think too highly of ourselves. I think we sometimes think of ourselves far too highly and we start thinking of ourselves as better than other people. And we think we've got it all figured out. And we talk about how we want there to be unity and then we think that we're better than somebody else who God raised from the dead, who who, somebody who God loves and lavishes their love on, somebody who God is creating into his poem. Th this should positionally let us see each other better and think less of ourselves. Second, I think we should think hi more highly of ourselves. And I know that sounds totally double-minded, but I think we need to realize who we are in Christ. We've been tethered to Christ because of his death and resurrection. And that means we are the sons and daughter of the king. That means that we are this beautiful creation that God is making, that, make, that, that he's working on to turn into something beautiful. And I think we need to get that into our head too. And not just us, but we need to think more highly of others because they're in the same boat. And God might not be done with them. And that might be what's rubbing you the wrong way about them. But boy, can't you wait to see what God does to that? Can't you wait to see how God takes that, which might rub you the wrong way and turn it into something beautiful? Because honestly, you're probably just as annoying. <laughs> 
I looked here. There's nobody there. The Holy Spirit's convicting. That isn't me. (laughs) Aren't you thankful that God took that which was broken, that which was dead, that which was disobedient, that which was depraved, and said, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save him. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And yet he says, I'm going to save you. And turn you into something beautiful. And use you for my plan that I preordained for you. That I prepared for you beforehand. So three, let's look to see how we can do good and know that that good we're doing was part of God's plan. And we get to be a part of that. That's cool too. We get to be a part of what he's doing in this world. So the next time you do something good for somebody, know that God had that planned for you. Amen? Aren't you thankful for our God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we get to be your poem. I thank you that you created us, that you saved us, and gave us that which we never deserved. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us see that in ourselves and in others. In your precious name we pray. Amen.